the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we'll talk with Greg Jantz, his latest book, Soul Care, Prayers, Scriptures, and Spiritual Practices for When You Need Hope the Most. He's joining us this hour. And later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Nick Loris. He is an economist. He focuses on energy, environmental, and regulatory issues as the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the cost of staying in the Paris Climate Agreement, which, as we mentioned yesterday, uh, the president made the first move to withdraw from. Now, you might have assumed, because statements were made back in 2017, that that was already the case. But uh, nations who were signatories, and this was under the Obama administration, were forbidden uh, from uh, trying to exit until three years had uh, lapsed. So um, we'll talk more about that with him when he joins us in the five o'clock hour. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. The FBI has offered assistance to the Mexican government as authorities investigate the brazen killing of nine Americans by drug cartel gunmen in northern Mexico on Monday. It was unclear if Mexican authorities have taken up uh, the offer. It came hours after Mexico rejected President Trump's overture to wage war on the country's drug cartels in response to the brutal slayings. Mexican President uh, Lopez Abrado thanked Trump but declined the uh, help, saying the worst thing we can do is war. Monday's brutal attack was just the latest massacre that questions the uh, uh, the president's uh, hugs, not bullets approach to escalating deadly violence in Mexico. This just miles away from the U.S. border. Officials said at least six children, including eight month old twins and three women living in a faith based community called Lamora in the Mexican state of Sonora, were among the victims. One woman was killed as she exited the vehicle to wave her hands and demonstrate she wasn't a threat, prosecutors said. All nine victims had dual American-Mexican citizenship. They were on their way to visit relatives in Mexico, and one was headed to an airport in Phoenix to meet her husband. Republican incumbent Governor Matt Bevin refused to concede late uh, Tuesday night in Kentucky's gubernatorial race, citing irregularities, potentially uh, kickstarting the uh, week of uncertainty as the closely watched contest with national implications remained too close to call. On Monday, the president had called on an angry majority of voters to boost the relatively unpopular Bevin in Kentucky in a nod to Richard Nixon's silent majority and Ronald Reagan's moral majority. But with 100 percent of precincts reporting, Bevin has uh, was behind his Democratic rival, the Attorney General Andy Bashir, uh, 49.2 percent um, to 48.9 um, percent. Libertarian candidate uh, John Hicks received uh, about 2 percent of the vote. The Associated Press said it could not declare a winner owing to the uh, tight margin. The Democratic National Committee and 
Bashir's uh, campaign, however, claimed victory. Although Bevan is not outlined uh, in his, uh, hasn't outlined his next steps, rather, Kentucky law provides several possible avenues. There is no mandatory recount law in Kentucky. Bevan may request counties recanvas, and my understanding is he has requested that, recanvas their results, which is not a recount, but rather a check of the vote count to ensure the results were added correctly. Bevan would need to seek and win a court's approval for a recount. To Tuesday's history-making evening also saw Republicans decisively hold on to the governorships in Mississippi despite a fierce Democratic challenge. Second-term Republican Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves defeated fourth-term Attorney General Jim Hood in the hardest-fought Mississippi governor's race since 2003. And Democrats in Virginia on Tuesday flipped both the state Senate and the House of Delegates, giving them control of both the governor's office and the legislature for the first time in more than two decades. Ahead of Tuesday's vote, Republicans had a slim majority in both the the state House and Senate, but Virginia has been trending blue for years as liberal-leaning suburbs and cities gain population while rural conservative areas contract. Governor Ralph Northam, a Democrat, was not up for re-election Tuesday, but actively campaigned for Democrats in his state after surviving the blackface scandal earlier this year. Democrats have promised that with control of the state legislature, they could pass an agenda that Republicans have blocked for years and including stricter gun laws and a higher minimum wage. In transcripts of closed-door interviews released by impeachment investigators on Tuesday, Kirk Volker, former U.S. envoy to Ukraine, pushed back on the claim that President Trump sought to withhold a meeting with Ukrainian President Zelensky until Kiev committed to investigating allegations concerning the 2016 election, while also denying that Trump was seeking dirt on former Vice President Joe Biden. The deposition transcripts, though, also reflect officials' concerns about the involvement of Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani in seeking politically related investigations out of Ukraine. Further, they offer varying accounts of whether a quid pro quo of some kind involving either a meeting or the release of U.S. military aid may have been presented. One of the worst significant revelations um, from Tuesday's transcripts release is that uh, EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland revised his prior testimony in a three-page addendum to his transcript. He said he told a top uh, Ukrainian official that U.S. aid would likely not resume until the country issues a corruption statement. This revelation was quickly hailed by Democrats of proof of a quid pro quo uh, they have been alleging took place. And the bombshell claim that ABC News quashed a story on allegations against Jeffrey Epstein has drawn new scrutiny on the controversy's ties to its own star anchor, George Stephanopoulos. Project Veritas, whose controversial founder James O'Keefe had described himself as a guerrilla journalist, published the footage that featured ABC News anchor Amy Robach claiming the Disney-owned network refused to air an interview she conducted with one of Epstein's accusers and even suggesting she'd uncovered new information about Epstein's ties to former President Bill Clinton as his wife, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, was running for president. Stephanopoulos, ABC News chief anchor on Good Morning America and the Sunday Morning This Week, who's overseen the network's political coverage, has uh, had deep ties to the Clintons. Before he became the face of ABC News, he was a senior advisor to Bill Clinton during his presidency. Ahead of the 2016 election, he pulled out of moderating debates after his $75,000 donation to the Clinton Foundation drew criticism. However, what's really raising eyebrows is a 2020 report of a party hosted by Epstein that Stephanopoulos 
attended. House Democrats have asked Mike Mulvaney to testify in the impeachment inquiry, which will resume, we understand, next week on the 13th. And Mitch McConnell says the Senate trial would not lead to a removal of Trump if held today, based on what they now know. And Tucson voters overwhelmingly reject sanctuary city measure in that state. YouTube is removing videos of a doctor discussing medical reality of transgenderism. He made the statement, which YouTube said they cannot permit, that if you wanted to have your arm or leg amputated, that would be considered mental illness. If you want to have your genitalia or your breasts removed, that's considered transgenderism. Trump has okayed a wider Syria oil mission, raising some legal questions. We'll continue to follow that story. And New Zealand's gun confiscation is apparently shaping up to be a massive failure. On this day in history, 1814, Alfie Sachs, an inventor of the saxophone, is born in Denant, Belgium. More on what happened this day on some years back when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, we'll talk with Dr. Greg Jantz, author of Soul Care, Prayers, Scriptures, and Spiritual Practices for When You Need Hope the most. He'll be joining us in our next segment. Well, on this day in history, 1814, Adolf Sax, inventor of the saxophone, is born in Denant, Belgium. On this day in 18, or excuse me, yes, 1860, Abraham Lincoln, a Republican former congressman from Illinois, is elected president of the United States as he defeats John Breckinridge, John Bell, and Stephen Douglas. 19, or rather 1861 on this day, Confederate President Jefferson Davis is elected to a six-year term of office. On this day in history, 1956, President Dwight Delano, um, Dwight D. Eisenhower, let's get the president right, wins re-election, defeating Democrat um, Adlai Stevenson. On this day in history, 1984, President Ronald Reagan wins re-election by a landslide over former Vice President Walter Mondale, the Democratic challenger. And on this day in 1997, former President George Herbert Walker Bush opens his presidential library at Texas A&M University. On this day in 2009, President Obama signs a $24 billion economic stimulus bill hours after the government reported that the unemployment rate had hit 10.2% in October of 2009 for the second time since World War II. And on this day in 2012, President Obama is elected to a second term, defeating Republican challenger Mitt Romney. On this day in 2016, FBI Director James Comey announces that Democrat Hillary Clinton should not face criminal charges related to newly discovered emails from her tenure at the State Department. And finally, on this day in 2018, Democrats seize the House majority in the midterm elections, but Republicans gain uh, ground in the Senate and preserve key governorships, beating back a blue wave that never fully materialized. But then again, there's always November 2020. We'll see what happens then. Well, yesterday was election day in Portland or or in Oregon, as uh, uh, much of the country, Portland area voters said yes to nearly all the measures put before them on Tuesday's election, including money to keep teachers on the payroll, preserve more natural land, fight mosquitoes, fund police and build schools. Among the ballot questions, voters approved with the percent uh, yes vote from partial returns as of 7 a.m. on uh, Well, this morning, Portland school levy renewal, 77 percent said yes. And by the way, the turnout was significantly low. Last I saw, it was only 19 percent of eligible voters. Metro bonds for nature and parks, 67 percent said yes. Enshrined bull run protections in Portland city charter, 89 percent said yes. 
$207 million Westland Wilsonville School construction bond, 61% said yes. And renewing the Happy Valley police levy, 78% yes. And renew Clackamas County mosquito control, 74% yes. Well, school measures for teachers, construction win big in Westland and Wilsonville, other Oregon districts. The exception was Grants Pass, where Josephine County residents who live outside the city lobbied Against the funding measure, voters approved $475 million metro bond for unspecified green space parks improvements. And voters approved the regional government's plan to buy more green space, improve existing parks and support uh, programs in cities and counties within its boundaries. Portland Public School voters said yes to a tax that funds one in three teachers. And voters once again extended the district's levy, which will bring in an estimated $100 million in the next school year. Portland voters approved adding Bull Run watershed protections to the city charter and measure 26204 passed with 87 percent of the vote of a very small percentage of overall eligible voters, according to partial returns as of last night. Just a brief um, look. Well, Tuesday's Election Day is in several states across the nation. Uh, headlining the list was Virginia, which saw Democrats gain majority control of both the House and the Senate, a definite blow to Republicans. The state has uh, become increasingly blue thanks to the growing population in northern Virginia surrounding Washington, D.C. Virginia also saw a record amount of outside spending to the tune of $13 million, largely in favor of Democrats. Notably, billionaire leftist George Soros and Michael Bloomberg each contributed one uh, over a million dollars, endorsing Democrats and leftist causes. Planned Parenthood received its largest contribution ever from Soros, while Bloomberg's anti-gun group, Every Town for Gun Safety, spent more than $1.5 million. With the Commonwealth now fully in Democrat hands, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam is free to push through his radical agenda, which includes gun confiscation and equal rights amendments that threatens religious liberty and a minimum wage hike, all of which Republicans had blocked. Meanwhile, Kentucky, uh, Kentucky GOP Governor Matt Bevin looks to have lost his reelection bid in a tight race, although he hasn't yet conceded. Uh, it was made tight only because uh, President Trump, the last uh, minute campaign effort that clearly helped shore up support for Bevin, who was trailing badly in the polls. However, Bevin has not yet conceded, as I mentioned, claiming voters voting irregularities. Kentucky also made history by electing the first black attorney general Daniel Cameron, who is also that Commonwealth's first Republican to hold the office in over 70 years. While much of the mainstream media sees Kentucky as a loss for Trump, the fact of the matter is that five of the six Republicans on the ballot won. Down in Mississippi's governor's race, Republican Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves decisively defeated Democrat Attorney General Jim Hood, 54 percent to 45 percent. Other states had initiatives on the ballot, including Texas, which passed Proposition 4, a significant amendment to the state constitution prohibiting the state from imposing an income tax. This is clearly a big win for the residents of Texas, keeping government growth in check. Residents in Colorado also voted down Proposition CC, an attempt by Democrat to chip away at the state's Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, or TABOR. The proposition would have allowed the state government to keep any individual state tax returns rather than return them back to taxpayers. It was, in essence, a backdoor tax increase without actually raising taxes. Even in uh, blue Colorado, a majority of uh, residents still believe that their hard-earned money belongs, well, to them and not the government. Just a brief glimpse of some of what... Um, what happened. Former Attorney General Jeff Sessions is expected and did announce plans to enter the 2020 race for the Alabama Senate seat he held before joining the Trump administration, according to sources familiar with the uh, effort and now confirmed. 
Uh, the sources say the announcement, uh, which happened today, uh, Sessions uh, joined, um, well, actually, that, that may not be available now, but uh, since he's entered the race, he would join a crowded field of Republicans already running to take on Democratic incumbent Senator Doug Jones. The filing deadline closes on Friday afternoon, so he's just under the wire. Sessions hasn't spoken with President Trump or Majority, Le- uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell after running for his old Senate seat, the source said. Uh, he has hired Kurt Anderson of On Message to be his campaign consultant. Sessions, who resigned from the Justice Department a year ago, Thursday, amid public attacks from the president he served, was one of Trump's most loyal and trusted advisors before their relationship soured over his recusal from the Russia investigation. A major question hanging over Sessions' entrance into the race is whether the president, who remains popular in Alabama, will take steps to thwart his bid. The president is scheduled to visit Alabama this weekend to attend the Alabama LSU game college football On Saturday, other Republicans running include U.S. Representative Bradley Brine, former Auburn football coach Tommy Tuberville, former Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice Roy Moore, Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill, businessman Stanley Adair, and State Representative Arnold Mooney. Uh, After Sessions resigned from the Senate to become Attorney General, Jones in 2017 pulled off a major upset in Alabama by defeating Moore, which wasn't that difficult to do, some of the given some of the controversy surrounding his candidacy, becoming the first Democrat to win election to the Senate from the deeply conservative state in 25 years. Moore had faced uh, multiple allegations. He pursued romantic relationships with uh, underage girls while he was in his 30s, accusations he denied. He's seeking the Republican nomination again for the seat in 2020. The House Intelligence Committee will hold its first uh, open hearings next week as part of the formal impeachment inquiry into President Trump featuring current and former officials with knowledge of the Ukraine controversy. Next week, the Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff uh, tweeted, uh, next week, the House Intelligence Committee will hold its first open hearings as part of the impeachment inquiry. On Wednesday, November 13th, we will hear from William Taylor, uh, George uh, Kent, He continued on Friday, November 15th. We will hear from Marie Yovanovitch. More to come, he added. Now, those who are being um, interviewed are those selected by the Democrats. It's not clear that the Republicans, uh, they have one day, I think, to to ask. And they have to ask if the people they want to hear from can, in fact, be included. And I'm not clear whether or not they have the right to cross-examine. So it'll be a rather interesting Uh, Back and forth. The first public hearing will feature uh, Taylor, the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who already testified before closed door before congressional investigators that the president pushed Ukraine to investigate election interference. Up next, we'll talk with Greg Jantz. He is the author of Soul Care, Prayers, Scripture and Spiritual Practices for When You Need Hope the most. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that we are living in a world of extremes. He says he can't remember a time when free-floating anxiety and depression have been more prevalent. That's a quote from psychologist and author Dr. Gregory Jantz. Depression, anxiety, stress, worry all coalesce into a toxic stew of emotions that have led to higher suicide rates and greater rates of substance abuse. Anger seems to be part of our new normal as civility wanes in a culture bent on responding to every tweet, comment, or opinion. Social media is particularly to blame, or at least partially, for the climate of increased hostility. We struggle to sift through fake news, real news, manipulation, and start to feel, well, a nagging 
sense of despair. Well, how is all of this affecting us in our spiritual, emotional, and physical level? In his latest book, or one of them, Soul Care, he examines the core principles that are rapidly disappearing in a culture of conflict. Dr. Jans identifies the attributes that are often missing, even from the lives of Christians. These include prayer, gratitude, confession, community, service, forgiveness, thoughts, and laughter. In Soul Care, he says you can control the on and off switch, replace the flow of negative messages, and replace them with positive truths. Oh, would that we would do that. Well, Dr. Greg Jantz is a certified eating disorder specialist, certified chemical dependency counselor, a nationally certified psychologist, and a licensed mental health counselor, the author of 39 books. Dr. Jantz is the founder of The Center, A Place of Hope. He brings a message of hope and healing to audiences through seminars, conferences, and the media. He joins us today to talk about this uh, handy little volume that's packed full of really helpful uh, resource for the healing of, uh, uh, it's a resource for the Healing Depression for Life um, uh, materials, again, soul care. Dr. Jance, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome back. Oh, good to be with you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate um, your soul care. Yeah, coming back to talk about this subject is kind of linked to what we had talked about a few weeks ago. Soul care. What impact um, would you say, at, from your professional position, does the negative news, the Twitter remarks, the hateful Facebook comments, and all of that that's swirling around us? What is it? What kind of an impact does that have? Well, you know, we're it, it's as though we're being bullied all day long. <laughs> there's always something mm-hmm. coming at us and it can feel at times i think it can feel a little bit emotionally abusive so it, it's a challenge uh, for us at times just to feel good because there's so much negative coming at us yeah it does seem to be relentless and from so many different directions um yeah. you, you point out that we're living in a world of extremes is it possible to guard ourselves from the uh, the never-ending onslaught well, I think we need to guard and, and be careful what we're allowing in. And I think there's times where we need to, maybe it's a detox from news for a little bit. Maybe it's uh, detoxing from people that um, are, uh, you know, abusive. But there comes a time where we've got to set up some boundaries of good self-care so that we can even have a clear mind and even hear what maybe God's saying to us. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, your book really is about adopting spiritual disciplines that will help impact us emotionally, spiritually, and even physically. Yeah. Uh, what are some of these core disciplines that shouldn't surprise someone who is a follower of Christ? <laughs> well, you know, one, that's why we made a little book with some simple things, uh, soul care. Well, you know, one of the disciplines, and we hear this a lot, though, is, is the discipline of, of, of prayer. And um, what does that mean? When we're stressed out, anxiety's high, and sometimes it's hard to even focus. Sometimes God feels far away. Sometimes we feel really detached. Well, we're, you know, and, or we feel unlovable. So those are important things. Just, to, you know, getting back to even allowing some undistracted prayer time, because everything's a distraction, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you provide a series of these spiritual disciplines that will impact us in a variety of ways. Um, have you uh, applied these in your own life at times of great stress? And how has that impacted even you as a professional who is subject to the same kinds of uh, influences that the rest of us are? How has that worked for you? Oh, and I have had times of great stress. Oh, have I? And I know what it's like. And it, this comes out of my own personal experience. What do I need 
to renew, revitalize. And so, yes, as far as spiritual practices, you know, um, the whole thing of gratitude is one that we talk about. Uh, Gratitude and really finding and fostering gratitude, which gives us optimism for the future. It gives us hope. But sincere gratitude, you know, we wake up and the days are hustled and just pausing to give thanks. Uh, that's a big, big deal. <laughs> they even take the time to have gratitude. Well, in fact, it can be difficult to just immediately uh, think of what to be grateful for when we seem to be surrounded by uh, things that undermine our capacity to be grateful. Isn't that right? Absolutely. So one of the things that uh, we need to sometimes is is having enough margin or space in our life and time uh, to even think about those things uh, we can have gratitude around. Maybe there's so much chronic stress in your life. Now, we work with people uh, and clients who come in from all over the country to work on depression and stress and uh, anxiety. And we're living in an age of a lot of depression. The World Health Organization says it's the number one disability in the world. You think about that. That's that's amazing. So as we began to uh, really think about, okay, what do I need to do that makes for good self-care? How can I protect myself? Well, you know, what difference would it make if I woke up tomorrow morning and on an old-fashioned three-by-five card, I wrote down three things in the morning that I was grateful for, and I just started my day with gratitude. I'll give you a personal example. Please. Um, About six years ago, my wife went through chemotherapy. And chemo, it it seemed like it lasted longer than normal, and, and it was a tough time, some dark days. She started doing something in the morning, and you can picture a a person, no hair, way underweight, and she started writing each day um, eight to ten things that she was grateful for. She started a gratitude journal. She has done this, and this was six years ago, she's done this nearly every day, and I just asked her the other day, how many gratitudes have you written down? And she's at 10,000 something. I go, how do you you think of 10,000 things you're grateful for? I just start my day with gratitude. You know what? I think that's prolonged her life and her well-being. It's amazing. Well, that is amazing. And my guess is we wouldn't have difficulty if we made it a regular practice to think of things to be grateful for if that became sort of the reflex that we, uh, this is what we go to. We go to the things that we're grateful for rather than focus on the things uh, that might undermine our sense of gratitude. There you go. Well said. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned it a moment ago, but you, you refer to prayer as the most important of the disciplines. And yet we oftentimes struggle. Sometimes we feel that we are speaking to ourselves in a quiet room. Talk about the kind of prayer uh, that God calls us to that does give care to our soul. And how much of that is speaking and how much of that is listening? Yes. You know, I think there's a, there's a, a listening and allowing quiet time. What is it if we're going through a really tough time? Uh, depression, anxiety, and life feels really maybe hopeless for your future. And maybe there's a lot of apathy about our future. I think if we can begin by praying for wisdom, Lord God, show me what I need to know. Lord God, show me uh, what I need to know to be, if you will, um, well. Uh, And beginning to pray for wisdom so often, and I get it, we pray, Lord, relieve me of the thorn in my side. Lord, take this away. And when we get, we're crying out, 
the next step is, Lord, give me the wisdom to know what it is I'm to do um, and what am I to learn. There's a shift in perspective uh, around prayer um, that can really be helpful. And of course, you write about that more extensively in the books to help us uh, in this effort to um, enjoy soul care. Uh, to walk through that. Another thing that you include in the list of spiritual practices is confession. Um, it's You say it's like a, an emotional and spiritual detox. Uh, how so? You know, spiritual, when we think about detox, um, what are those things that are polluting our lives? <laughs> um, what are those things um, that could be um, causing poison for us emotionally? Where is it anger? Is it hurt? What are those things that really, really are um, that we're carrying around? Old wounds, resentment. You know, that's going to poison us. That's going to make us toxic. Sometimes we don't realize, wow, all that past trauma and hurt, how it's really poisoning me today. So through uh, confession, we release that um, that hold that it has on us? You know, I think confession is being willing to talk about it. It's being willing to share it with others. It's being willing just to confess to God. Maybe there's some uh, hidden uh, hurts. Uh, there's some things that you've kept hidden, and those secrets are, are really poisonous over time. So let's look at that. Yeah, yeah, sort of detox, as you put it. We're going to continue our yeah. conversation with uh, Dr. Jans in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show about 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. We're talking with uh, Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, Soul Care, Prayers, Scriptures, and Spiritual Practices for When You Need Hope the Most. Uh, this is part of the Healing Depression for Life resource uh, available from uh, Dr. Jantz. We're talking about the spiritual practice that can help us when we, as your subtitles uh, suggest, when we need hope the most. And that can be a challenge yeah. in the 21st century. You write about the uh, the importance of community and how vital it is to spiritual and emotional health. Uh, explain why that is the case and what's most effective about going through uh, challenges together. You know, we need community. And one of the things is when we get depressed, what do we tend to do? We tend to isolate. We tend to uh, withdraw. We tend to do escapism behaviors. What's that look like? Well, I, I secretly eat. I drink. I self-medicate. And so when we do these things, it takes us farther and farther away from community, which means relationships. I need relationships to be restored and renewed. I need truth tellers in my life, people that are going to tell me the truth that sometimes I don't want to hear, (laughs) but important. Yeah, yeah. You also write about unforgiveness and how that erodes the soul. Uh, I suppose if we're living in community alongside others, or even if we're breathing in the world where <laughs> that's occupied by other people, yeah. forgiveness is a, an issue that is going to confront us with some regularity. Talk about the the um, erosive nature of unforgiveness and how it damages uh, the psyche. It weakens our immune system. It really has a significant impact if we are disobedient in applying forgiveness as we ourselves, who are followers of, of Jesus, have been forgiven. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, when we think about forgiveness, 
I know we hear a lot about forgiveness, and as believers and Christians, we think about, okay, forgiveness, what am I really supposed to do with that? What's that really mean? If there's one single issue at all that will trip people up, and we see it over and over and and in those lives that we work with is probably a lack of forgiveness and carrying around bitterness and resentment and really not understanding it or understanding the full impact that it's really having in my life. And so sometimes we don't get it. Uh, we don't realize that that's what we're doing. Um, other times, uh, you know, just the, we feel unlovable and that God can never forgive us. And so we, we live with that sense of inferiority, unlovableness. And so this is such an important one. Let's talk about what forgiveness is in the context of unforgiveness and how uh, how bad it can be for us. What do you mean by forgiveness? Because if someone has a legitimate um, grievance, yes. uh, sometimes we we think that in order for us to extend forgiveness, we have to overlook the offense that took place. And uh, and that always means that we restore a relationship, even if it is dangerous to us or it can be uh, destructive. What What does this kind of forgiveness mean? Um, when you have a legitimate uh, concern. Yeah, a legitimate concern, and many times that really is the case. You've been injured, hurt, wounded, and it's legitimate. Some You were emotionally abused, you were traumatized, treated unfairly, unjustly, and, and really to be hurt or to be angry, well, that's the normal response. Our danger becomes, if we stay stuck in that hurt, an injury because it always goes somewhere. Think about anger. Another word for anger could be hurt. That's always going to go somewhere. Uh, we self-medicate. It affects the health of all of our relationships. That's one of the things that sometimes we don't fully understand is if, if I'm really walking around bitterness and resentment, you know, it affects intimacy, closeness, trust, and so it erodes our relationships. So forgiveness is really that um, decision that maybe I have to make several times that says I am uh, no longer needing to get it, you know, even I'm, I'm giving up the need to be right. Uh, forgiveness is solely for our well-being, not for the other person's. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it, to understand the destructive nature of bitterness and unforgiveness, I think will help us in that area. You also write about serving others and how that can help us. Sometimes when we are looking for hope or we've, uh, we're, we're stressed out, the last thing we want to do is uh, turn our vision outward to minister to other people. And yet that is precisely what uh, can help us uh, care for our own soul. Yes. And you are so right in saying this. One of the things that uh, we need to do and it's a decision over and over and over, is that decision that I I want to be well, I want to be healthy, and I'm willing to do whatever whatever it takes. And uh, that's a place that, um, you know, we've got, sometimes it's easy just to escape and not deal with these things, but um, think about it. When uh, we're, I'll have regret eventually. And so uh, we hear people say, I just so wish I would have gotten help sooner. And, uh, you know, they regret not taking action. So my my word today is let's make a decision. Let's move on and not have regret. Yeah, that's one of the, my goals in life is to live without, uh, you know, an accumulation of regret at the end. That can be something of a challenge. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. 
how do negative emotions sap our mental and physical strength? Because we do tend to hold on to them and don't necessarily know how to release them. It's precisely what soul care is about. But how, how do these negative emotions sap from us the very strength and energy that we desperately need? Yes. Think of the three negative emotions. Anger, in other words, anger is hurt. Fear, fear or anxiety. And then there's guilt. In other words, for guilt could be shame. So three deadly toxic emotions, and they're going to zap your emotional energy. They're going to affect your sleep. Uh, So watch those. You'll know a healthy person emotionally is uh, pretty well actively uh, regulating, dealing with anger, fear, and guilt in their life. Now, there's a true guilt. means I screwed up. I Mm -hmm. need to ask for forgiveness. There's a false guilt, which is that sense of shame that, um, you know, I did that I'm unworthy, I'm defective. So, but just uh, use the gauge. If I'm full of anger, full of hurt, um, that's going to tell me something. If I, every time, uh, you know, I'm in a relationship, I just I'm constantly dealing with anger and hurt, that's going to tell me something. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, you write about the important benefits of laughter. And again, that can be something of a challenge when you're feeling depressed or low. How important is laughter? And we know it's good like a medicine, but how does it benefit us when we are caring for our own soul? Oh, yes, yes. Laughter. I had to include this one. The power of laughter gives us perspective. The power of laughter changes our brain chemistry. Laughter does not mean I'm avoiding or laughing things off. Laughter is part of a gift that God has given us. It's an ingredient for joy. Even the ability to have proper perspective and laugh at ourselves, to loosen up and uh, look at things through a a joyful laughter lens at times sure can be helpful. And you're going to find people who have good emotional well-being, good emotional intelligence. Um, It's not that they're laughing everything off, but they're going to have a, a keen sense of perspective, and you're going to probably notice more smiles. If you laugh more, there'll be more smiles. So it's an important piece, and I just had to include it. Yeah, yeah, so important. Well, once again, this little book that's full of great uh, depth and information, Soul Care, Prayers, Scriptures, and Spiritual Practices for When You Need Hope Most. It also has a component at the end with scriptures that you can turn to in uh, these areas as well. Dr. Jans, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering Today's program. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. We're just a couple of days away from Girls' Night Out, Know Your Worth. KPDQ and our sister station, The Fish, we are hosting Girls' Night Out. And the theme this year is Know Your Worth. Revive Ministries will be presenting, and it's coming up soon. Tickets are going fast. You can uh, check it all out at kpdq.com. I'm talking about this Saturday, November the 9th, at Northwest Christian Church, the Tigard Campus. The doors will open at 6 with appetizers. There's a photo booth. Then there's going to be an opportunity for an uplifting message and dessert and coffee reception to follow. Come share a laugh, be encouraged, leave feeling refreshed because you are worth it. want to thank some of our sponsors, Fat Cupcake, Faith Box, and For the King Apparel. You can find out more and get your ticket today at kpdq.com or the KPDQ mobile 
app. And I want to let you know, too, that Portland Singing Christmas Tree is coming soon, and you could win free tickets. You can enter online to win a family four-pack of tickets to see Portland's Singing Christmas Tree Friday, November 22nd, 7.30 p.m. at the Keller Auditorium. Enjoy a night full of holiday music with family. The um, Miss America, Katie Harlan, is going to be performing, as is... Timothy Greenwich, it's going to, I might sing a song or two. It's going to be a great um, and festive occasion. We'd love for you to join us. And by the way, that's KPDQ night. So uh, you can enter once per day. So head over to kpdq.night.com, kpdq.com, or your mobile app for your chance to win. And I hope to make it out to the lobby afterwards. So if you happen to win those tickets, I'd love to say hello, look for me, and I'll look for you. Well, Democrats on Wednesday released a transcript of testimony from U.S. diplomat Bill Taylor, in which he claimed to have a clear understanding that President Trump wanted to leverage military aid to Ukraine in return for investigations that could benefit him politically. While acknowledging he didn't have firsthand knowledge of what was in the president's mind, that was my clear understanding. Security assistant money would not uh, come until the president committed to to pursue the investigation. That's the president from Ukraine. Now, we've since learned that Ukraine didn't know the money was held up at the time of that phone call. They didn't learn until uh, mid-August, but we'll go over those details and timeline on another occasion. But Taylor is a top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine who has emerged as a key figure of interest in the Trump impeachment inquiry, having alleged a quid pro quo was at play despite White House denials. Now, again, he didn't have firsthand knowledge, but this is what he understood. The transcript shows that Taylor testified he had been told by other officials that the White House was willing to hold up both military aid and a Respective White House meeting with Ukraine's president to extract a public announcement from Kiev that probes related to election interference and a company linked to former Vice President Biden's son were underway. Uh, that's what Ambassador Sondland said, Taylor said, so again, secondhand, referring to EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland. He said that they were linked, they were linked, referring to Sondland. But Republicans have pushed back that Taylor didn't have primary knowledge regarding the key events in question, but rather based his testimony off conversation with others. In one exchange between GOP Representative Lee Zeldin and Taylor during his deposition, Taylor was asked whether he had any firsthand knowledge of Trump conditioning an investigation into the election in 2016 and the Bidens on military aid. Taylor said he didn't speak to the president or have any direct communication with the president regarding the request for investigations. Instead, he said he was uh, basing much of his testimony on what former United States Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations Kurt Volker and Sondland told him. What I know is what Ambassador Sondland was able to tell me about those investigations and Ambassador Volker. Uh, Taylor said, I don't know what was in the president's mind. It probably would have been better then to testify that I don't have firsthand knowledge, but others uh, whose opinion I um, regard uh, said that they did, and you might want to talk to him. That might have been a better way of addressing it, but the investigation continues, and as I mentioned, public hearings begin uh, next week on the 13th. Well, evidently within the Washington Beltway, the identity of the uh, Trump whistleblower, the hack who submitted a a complaint over President Donald Trump's July 25th phone call with the president of Ukraine, has been an open secret for some time. However, due to House Democrats' demands that the whistleblower remain anonymous in order to protect him from Trump, the mainstream media has dutifully complied. The House Republicans' uh, hands are largely Uh, tied, although a couple of them have said they believe they know who the whistleblower is. Representative Adam Schiff, who has forbidden public comments on the specifics of the closed-door hearings, uh, isn't uh, speaking
speaking either. Well, thanks to reporting from Real Clear Investigations, however, the secret is out. The anonymous whistleblower is likely a 33-year-old government official named Eric, uh, I think it's Sierra Mella, When the Washington Examiner sought to verify the whistleblower's identity with House Republicans, none were willing to give a straightforward confirmation, but several did offer tacit approval. Tellingly, Representative Louis Gohmert, he's a Republican out of Texas, stated, well, as far as that particular person, regardless of whether or not he is a whistleblower, he apparently worked for former CIA Director John Brennan. He worked for H.R. McMaster. He worked for Joe Biden. He was tasked to the National Security Council on Ukraine, Gohmert then added, and sounds like he um, got bigger problems than being a whistleblower, regardless of whether he is or not. Again, still a quite open question. But it is apparently um, this individual is an open, the name is an open secret, and the whistleblower has been unmasked. Now, how important that individual will be moving forward? When we began, um, everything hinged on that individual and their credibility. Now uh, we're hearing from Schiff that he's irrele- he or she is irrelevant. So we'll see uh, what happens moving forward, particularly with the public hearings. And uh, we'll see whether or not there's going to be a willingness to provide the transcripts from the closed hearings that took place in the 30 plus days uh, before the vote took place last week. Well, at least nine American women and children were slaughtered in northern Mexico on Monday, the victims of cartel violence. Tragically, such carnage is all too common. The unchecked power of criminal enterprises in Mexico poses an unacceptable threat, not just to Mexico, but to the entire Western Hemisphere. The cartel's reach extends from the tip of Latin America to northern Canada. Uh, This isn't just about drugs. We're being told the cartels will traffic in anything that makes a buck. Most recently, they've cashed in on the rush to smuggle illegal aliens across the U.S. border. And a report by RAND, for example, estimated that in 2017, the cartels made almost $3 billion from human smuggling. The problem isn't drugs. The problem is the cartels. Cartel smuggling networks extend to Africa. They're in Europe and Asia as well. These gangs aren't just smuggling operations. They're diversified enterprises. They engage in every manner of criminal activity from murder for hire to kidnapping, extortion, fraud, money laundering, car theft, and on and on. Their avarice, their ambition, and uh, unconstrained violence would awe the likes of Al Capone. And the danger they pose is not just to public safety. Where civic institutions and governance are weak, the criminal cartels inter, uh, intertwine with oligarchs. Together, they seize control of political power and state-owned enterprises, creating a st- stranglehold that chokes off civil society, democracy, and the rule of law. Venezuela is the poster child for this pernicious phenomenon. Nicolas Maduro has driven virtually the entire country into poverty, leading millions of refugees to flee the, uh, the country that he and his cronies have created. Yet, despite international pressure, sanctions, international or rather internal opposition his illegitimate regime still clings to power well in part maduro is still there because his regime is fueled by drug cash from criminal cartels well the murders on monday of innocent americans three women two infants and four other children shocked uh, shocks because of the senselessness of the brutality yet the truth is the cartel related violence in mexico kills tens of thousands every year many of these are just as innocent Uh, The Mexican government, uh, their way of countering the threat has been largely wrongheaded. The Mexican president, uh, uh, Obrador, commonly called AMLO, has generally adopted the old uh, policy of seeking social peace, a policy dedicated to the proposition that if the government doesn't go after the cartels, the cartels won't go after the government. Instead, the theory goes, they will largely confine the
and their violence to terrorizing and murdering each other and spend the rest of their time laundering their money and lounging by the pool. Well, AMLO, Mexico's, uh, Mexico's president, his way clearly is not working. Mexico's homicide rate has skyrocketed over the last two years. Before his election, the record for homicide was 28,000 in 2011. Last year under AMLO, it was 35,000. This year, we'll top that. President Trump has offered to partner with the president of Mexico in fighting the cartels. The FBI has offered to come alongside. Well, they can go down in history as leaders who broke the back of the cartels once and for all. If the president of Mexico goes for it, whether that's through the FBI or the president's offer to help. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 16 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. Just a quick personal note, my friend Samuel Hakim, he has surgery tomorrow. If you think of it, would you pray for him? He is the founder and the director of Redeeming the Nations Ministries, an incredible Christian man who's making such a significant impact. He's one of those guys who, um, when we get to heaven, people are going to be surprised. Who, who is that? Samuel, who? What, what did he do? And yet, you know, we're all going to just stand back when he, he comes into the presence of the Lord and we hear, well done. Anyway, he's going in for surgery tomorrow. It could be a, a serious uh, procedure and would uh, appreciate your prayers. If you just um, remember uh, Redeeming the Nations and Samuel Hakim, keep him in your prayer. I'll talk more about it at the end of the program with more detail. But anyway, just wanted to mention that. Well, the Justice Department on Monday demanded information on the anonymous senior Trump administration staffer behind the infamous 2018 resistance New York Times op-ed ahead of the mysterious author's upcoming anti-Trump book. Well, it's been confirmed that the Justice Department officials have asked for details on the anonymous author in a letter to the publisher. That was earlier this week, which also indicated that the secretive author could be subject to non-disclosure agreements. If the author is, in fact, a current or former senior official in the Trump administration, which is what is alleged, publication of the book may violate that official's legal obligations under one or more non-disclosure agreements, including non-disclosure agreements that are routine required with respect to information obtained in the course of one's official responsibilities or as a condition for access to classified information. Assistant Attorney General Joseph Hunt wrote, such agreements typically require that any written work potentially containing protected information be submitted for pre-publication review. Uh, Courts have approved the imposition of a constructive trust to collect the proceeds of the breach generated by an unapproved publication. Well, the publisher, uh, publisher rather, Hatchet Book Group later replied that uh, it received Hunt's letter but would not comply with the request to reveal any details of the author's identity. Hatchet is not party to any non-disclosure agreement with the U.S. government that would require any pre-publication review of this book, the company's executive vice president and general counsel wrote on Monday. Well, the controversial book is set to hit store shelves later this month. It's titled A Warning. It comes roughly a year after the senior official laid out his scathing attack. According to the publisher, the book will be released on the 19th and uh, pick up where the controversial op-ed left off. This explosive book offers a shocking first-hand account of President Trump and his record, the publisher said last month. Uh, Javelin's Matt Latimer and Keith um, Urban, or, or Urban, both of whom represented former FBI Director James Comey on his book, are working with the author, whose identity is still unknown to the public. 
titled I Am Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration, the Times op-ed, which was published back in September of 2018, revealed that the author and others in the administration wanted to undermine the president's agenda. And while the author distances himself um, or themselves from the popular resistance movement, uh, they also asserted that thwarting Trump was vital to the health of the nation. We believe our first duty is to this country, and the president continues to act in a manner that is detrimental to the health of our republic. Oh, they actually got it right. Republic. The official said in the op-ed. Well, the op-ed took a particular aim at the president's behavior, claiming he was erratic and had a fundamental amorality that plagued his administration. Anyone who works with him knows he is not moored to any discernible first principles that guide his decision-making, it read. Well, then White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders responded by blasting the author's cowardice and calling on them to resign. It's unclear whether the official is still in the administration or has resigned. It certainly does reveal a a level of cowardice, particularly if they are still uh, in the position they uh, purport to have held or currently hold. Well, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey recently announced that the social media platform will no longer run political advertisements of any kind. Twitter is a private company and is free to adopt whatever policies it wants. But this decision isn't to the win for civil discourse and our democratic infrastructure that Dorsey claims it to be. Defending his decision, writes John uh, Rourke, Dorsey drew a, um, a, a dichotomy between merit, uh, let's see, earned media and misleading paid content. The dichotomy is shallow and misleading. And while he is right that absent paid political advertising, a political message earns reach when people decide to follow an account or retweet, Dorsey doesn't ask the obvious next question. How do people go about earning Twitter followers? Well, the politicians who tend to dominate Twitter come in two varieties, long established office holders and positions of leadership, Uh, Like Nancy Pelosi, who has 3.3 million followers and firebrands who feel for the zeitgeist like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has 5.7 million followers. Well, the reality is that without the ability to pay for advertisements, new voices will have a hard time breaking in unless they're willing to engage in the flame wars and mudslinging that attract followers on Twitter. If you're relatively um, moderate, uh, if you're a relatively moderate congressperson or a senator without a major leadership role, the Twitterverse is unlikely to embrace you uh, with open arms. And that is at least in part uh, the problem. We'll continue to follow this um, story and its implications as the decision apparently has now been made. Well, Gallup has a headline, Religion Isn't Dying. People return to church as they age, after all. Well, the percentage of the population that has no religious identity may be increasing, but a new Gallup report says such an anti-religion worldview is primarily embraced by younger people and that as people age, they are more likely to go back to church. Now, this runs counter to the poll that we heard just about a week or so ago. Predictions of the forthcoming demise of religion as we know it may be premature, Gallup's Frank Newport wrote in their new report. The report notes that between 20 and 25 percent of U.S. adults are now identified as nuns, meaning they answer none in surveys when asked about their religious identification. But despite this overall increase in nuns, Newport wrote, older people are still less likely to eschew religion 
than those who are younger. This is even true among people in their 30s compared to those in their 20s. Newport referenced a recent Washington Post story, which uh, was titled Why Millennials Are Skipping Church and Not Going Back, and argued the picture is more complex. There are signs that older millennials may, in fact, contrary to the headline, be going back to religion, Newport wrote. Older millennials are more likely than younger millennials to have a religious identity, and older millennials are more likely than younger millennials to say they attend religious services frequently. About 38% of adults in their mid-20s identify as nuns, according to this poll, but we'll see. Well, a similar pattern holds for church attendance, Newport noted. About 20% of adults, adults rather, in their mid-20s attend church weekly or almost weekly, but among adults in their 80s, it's around 50%. People return to church as they age, he wrote. No doubt nuns are up among uh, all age groups, Newport wrote, but older people are still less likely to renounce religion. Religiosity plummets after 18, uh, coincident with um, young people leaving home and heading out into the real world for work or college, Newport wrote. Then religiosity begins to rise again as young people grow through their 30s, uh, coincident with marriage, children, and more stable involvement in specific communities. Religiosity generally continues to rise with age, albeit with some points at which it is fairly flat and reaches its peak in Americans' late 70s and 80s. Broad structural changes in society and culture may well continue to affect religiosity across all groups, but the big bulge in millennials may actually get more religious as they age. Well, Glenn Stanton, who's the director of family formation studies at Focus on the Family, uh, says that uh, the data reflects a demographic trend that has always been true. He's the author of the book Myth of the Dying Church, How Christianity is Actually Thriving in America and the World. It has long been a truism of generational human experience that young people tend to be less religious in their practice than they uh, were as teens or what they um, will be in their coming adult years, Stanton told uh, Uh, The uh, Christian headlines, even the good Puritans in the colonial days bemoaned the troubling loss of faith among their own children. Weekly church attendance uh, does increase as people grow older and settle into a greater rhythm of life with their children. Additionally, Stanton said Americans who identify as none are often mischaracterized within mainstream media. The nuns are not a new group of growing secularists or believers, Stanton said. Leading sociologists of religion are clear and consistent on that point. These are simply those who used to say they identified with some denomination but only went to Christmas and Easter, if that. Now they're simply more comfortable admitting what they've always been, nothing. It's simply a change in categorization, not belief, so much. So there you have it, one study that contradicts the other. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the United States, as we mentioned yesterday, just took a major step to leaving the Paris Climate Agreement. Per the terms of that agreement, the United States submits formal notification of its withdrawal to the United Nations. That withdrawal will take effect one year from delivery of the notification. Now, this is three years in, and as we explained yesterday, that's how it was set up. You couldn't opt out until three years of the agreement stood in place. The first day it was possible, the president uh, did just that. Well, uh, in June of 2017, President Trump uh, made it clear that it would pose an unfair economic burden on American workers, businesses and taxpayers. Here to talk with us about what this uh, means at this point and moving forward is Nick Loris. He is an economist who focuses on energy, environmental and regulatory issues as the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Absolutely. Glad to be here. You know, I think a lot of people assumed because of comments that were made by the president way back in June of 2017 that we had already withdrawn from the the, uh, Paris Climate Agreement. But that was not the case because baked into it was a prohibition from stepping away uh, until three years had passed. Can you explain how this thing was configured? Yeah, that's exactly right. So back during the Obama administration, when the negotiations uh, were ongoing, uh, part of the agreement within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is where all of these uh, protocols and climate agreements come together, baked into that agreement was a process that was uh, time-consuming to withdraw. Uh, so um, submitting that notification to withdraw or just announcing that uh, the United States would pull out, uh, as you mentioned, uh, couldn't happen until three years after the agreement formally took place. And then the withdrawal process into the itself uh, takes a year to officially take place. And so it's a long process, um, but it's the right one because the Paris Climate Accord, uh, I think no matter what your stance on climate change or climate change policy is, uh, was a, a very weak uh, agreement that would have led to a lot of regulations in the United States that would have imposed unfair costs on American families and businesses to higher energy prices while really doing nothing to mitigating global emissions or slowing down global warming or sea level rise. Yeah. Now, for those who um, argue that that catastrophic climate change is looming in the near future, they would argue that any slight change is is worth doing. But I, I appreciate that you make the point this would not have had much of an impact on climate at all. I mean, it's a great PR stunt, um, but it really doesn't have a mechanism for uh, enforcing. It doesn't uh, really do much to to move the needle one way or the other. That's right. The the requirements are not legally binding. The, each country had an opportunity to submit its own targets, which meant that a lot of the developing countries submitted very weak targets that in many instances were below what they would achieve even if they went on their business as usual trajectory in terms of growing their economy uh, and gaining access to energy sources. And so you have countries like China who doesn't have to peak their emissions until the year 2030, and most studies indicate that that's going to happen anyway before 2030. Uh, A country like India submitted a contribution that was based on Emissions reductions as a ratio to economic growth. So as long as their economy continued to grow, they could grow their emissions. Uh, and as I mentioned, they set their targets so low that they can just continue doing what they're doing and make it look like progress. And so that's why a lot of the countries who set hard targets are failing to meet them, mostly in the developed world. And those who set super easy targets are going to make them, but it's not like they're actually making any significant cuts to greenhouse gas emissions. Now, you point out that forecasts indicate that coal, oil, and natural gas are going to continue to provide the overwhelming majority of the world's energy needs well into the future. And for nations that are developing, uh, they rely on the capacity to develop, which means that their emissions are likely to increase. What impact would this agreement, or assuming it were to be applied as um, the PR would say, uh, would this have on developing countries' ability uh, to develop? I think that's a big concern for developing countries, which is why they set their emissions target so weekly, is that a lot of countries in their nationally determined contributions, which is what they submitted to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, 
explicitly says that, hey, we are a developing country. We have a lot of people in energy poverty who don't have access to affordable, reliable power. And so we're going to increase our greenhouse gas emissions exponentially and well into the future until we have higher levels of prosperity and human flourishing that we can start to worry about these things. And so if you look at countries uh, like Indonesia and like India and China who do have environmental problems, no doubt about it, Um, But a lot of those environmental problems aren't related to carbon dioxide, which is a colorless, odorless, non-toxic gas. The the black carbon and the soot and smog and polluted water qualities that are the environmental challenges that are facing these countries. And they need higher levels of growth and they need uh, more economic freedom because it's those policies that will increase the amount of resources these countries have to take care of their environment. And something like Paris would effectively stunt that growth if they had to implement legally binding emissions reductions uh, requirements. It would essentially trap a lot of these countries uh, and keep them de-developed and trap them in lower levels of prosperity and human flourishing. You make the point that following through with the Obama administration's commitments would have imposed clear economic harm on the U.S. by driving energy prices up, but it's not just energy prices. Uh, we'd pay more as Americans for food, for health care, education, clothes, every other good and service that requires energy. Can you talk a little bit about the economic impact that this uh, agreement would have if it were to uh, if we were to remain in it and how we're doing in terms of dealing with the issues that it's uh, at least purportedly addressing. Yeah, a big part of the concern over the Paris Agreement, and this was a, a longtime concern for both Democrats and Republicans, um, dating back to the Kyoto Protocol and some of these other international agreements on climate change, is that we didn't want to impose economic harm on the United States as part of these agreements. And that kind of got tossed out the window by the Democrats in the Paris Climate Accord. But the regulations that would have been forced upon the energy industry to meet these requirements, uh, both for 2025 and 2030, but all the way up to 2050, would cost them money. And those costs would be passed on to consumers. And because energy is such a critical component of everything we make and do, that's going to act like an economic vice that squeezes both the production side and the consumption side of the economy as businesses invest less in labor and capital to pay their higher energy bills and consumers buy less because everything they buy costs more money. And so that has huge ripple effects throughout the economy. We estimated using the federal government's own energy model that compliance with Paris would have cost uh, about 400,000 jobs by the year 2035, about half of them being in energy intensive manufacturing sectors. So uh, for the lack of climate benefit that we would derive from Paris, it would come at a significant price. So the United States has taken its first step to withdraw from the Paris Agreement as expected, three years in. It'll take a year before it is finalized. What is the future of the uh, the Paris uh, Agreement in terms of its desired hope that it would inspire uh, countries to do more, um, uh, which uh, to this point is not playing out? It's not, and that's what proponents say, that Paris is just the first step and then it's going to lead to more stringent policy and cuts. But if you look both in the United States and around the world, although action on climate change is becoming marginally more popular, uh, when you compare it to other issues uh, for priorities for citizens of those countries, 
uh, it ranks either dead last or next to last on priorities for those citizens. Uh, you know, economic growth and jobs and national security and immigration are, are far higher priorities than action on climate change. And as we mean with actions like the Yellow Vest protests in France, that people don't want to see higher energy bills and they don't want their tax money going to these green policies where they're not seeing the environmental benefit from them. So I think you have concerns in the developed world where people aren't willing to pay for these policies because they're not seeing the environmental benefit. And then you have concerns in the developing world because they need access to affordable, reliable power. And uh, the real moral priority for those governments is gaining access to uh, those energy resources, whether it be coal, oil, and natural gas. That's not to say nuclear and renewables can't be part of the equation, Uh, But as most uh, economic analyses and energy analyses project, whether it's the U.S. Energy Information Administration or the International Energy Agency, uh, there's a good chance that coal, oil, and natural gas are going to supply the majority of the world's energy needs for the foreseeable future because they are abundant and affordable. Yeah, yeah. Well, Nick Loris, thank you so much for talking with us. Anytime. Thanks again for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, Nick Loris is an economist. He focuses on energy, environmental, and regulatory issues at the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow, and uh, he works with the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I read a headline today that was rather surprising because, well, quite frankly, I didn't know he was still living. But Philip Johnson, some of you will remember him. He was a, a lawyer and he put the Darwin on trial. He was a man of great influence. And uh, I was asked recently, Uh, When we were reflecting on the 30 years of my being here at KPDQ, one of my favorite guests, and I would have to say Philip Johnson would be on that very short list of guests that I thoroughly enjoyed having on. I mean, I enjoy all of the guests, but I especially looked forward to a conversation with him. Philip Johnson was a law professor. He helped launch the modern intelligent design movement. He died at his home in Berkeley, California. He was 79. He's been out of circulation for quite some time, and I assume that he had already gone on to his reward. But his landmark book, Darwin on Trial, argued that Darwinian evolution didn't have real evidence or good arguments, but was instead another kind of fundamentalism. When it was published back in 1991, Darwin on Trial galvanized a group of Christians who opposed the theory of evolution, but also wanted to distance themselves from Bible-based creationism, which couldn't be taught in public schools. It wasn't that they rejected Bible-based creationism, but they wanted to have a foot in the door to Uh, have influence within the scientific community. It was necessary to put aside all questions of biblical interpretation or veracity and to concentrate entirely on the claims of Darwinism, he wrote for Christianity Today back in 94. What was needed was to press questions that are legitimated within the context of mainstream academic thinking, questions about what has been proved about evolution and what has merely been assumed. Well, a focus uh, on debating the evidence for Darwinism made Johnson the chief architect and guiding light of the intelligent design movement, according to William Dembski, who was a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute until 2016. Knowing him quite well, he says, Phil helped us focus on the right questions. John Bloom, who's professor of physics and the director of the science and religion program at Biola University, said, whatever the details, was God involved in creation or did mindless particles come together to make us? What conclusion does the actual evidence support? Sometimes we don't see the forest for the trees. Phil reminded me to focus on the big picture. 
Well, Johnson wasn't always interested in the big picture, though. He grew up in Aurora, Illinois, was, by his own account, a bit obnoxious and too smart for his own good. He went to Harvard University at 17, but was um, disengaged and mostly aimless. After Harvard, he went on to law school at the University of Chicago, but only because his father submitted his application and he didn't have a better idea. When he graduated, he got a coveted position as a clerk for Roger Trainer, who was chief justice of the California Supreme Court, and then as clerk for Earl Warren, chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. From there, he went on to the University of California Berkeley School of Law in 1967. Johnson was an agnostic who admired the faith of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien, and uh, Dostoevsky. Johnson was introduced to a contemporary Christian faith, however, when his daughter attended a vacation Bible school. Uh, if you have worked over the summer months in a vacation Bible school, think about that. You may wonder, did I make any impact at all? Well, J- Johnson He was introduced to a contemporary Christian faith when his daughter attended Vacation Bible School. Your impact may reach far beyond what you realize. Anyway, he was moved by what he saw her learn and started attending and eventually joining the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley at 38. Johnson didn't start thinking about the question of evolution until he was on sabbatical in England in 1987. At 47, he was starting to feel like he was wasting his life teaching law. I'd like to have an insight that is worthwhile, he said, speaking to his wife, and not just be an academic who writes papers and spins words. Then he came across a new book in a London bookshop, The Blind Watchmaker by atheist Richard Dawkins. As he started to read, Johnson felt a stab of recognition. Darwin was using the same rhetorical tricks that clever lawyers use when they have to defend a flawed case in court. What first drew my attention, he said, to the question was the way the rules of argument seem to be structured to make it impossible to question whether what we are being told about evolution is really true. Well, Johnson started researching the arguments for evolution and writing what uh, would become Darwin on trial. The first draft was 88 single-spaced pages and didn't immediately impress anyone. Dembski only um, glanced at it because he assumed a lawyer wouldn't have anything interesting to say about evolution. Historian Edward Larson, he thought it was fairly pedestrian, though it articulated some old arguments with a new clarity. Well, Johnson took those criticisms, made revisions, and pushed forward, publishing the book in 1991. It quickly became a bestseller among evangelicals and also grabbed the attention of conservatives Protestants and Catholics, and renewed interest in the argument for intelligent design. After Johnson organized a conference on the subject in 1992, the year later, and established an online um, list serve to continue the conversation, he was firmly established at the center of this new movement. Well, the book was popular enough to receive serious criticism. One evolutionary biologist said Darwin on trial was worse than most of the garden variety creationist tracts, Stephen Jay Gould a paleontologist and popular science writer called it a very bad book full of errors badly argued based on false criteria and abysmally written. Johnson was also criticized by Christian academics. Calvin College physicist Howard Van Til said intelligent design was a scientific dead end. Fuller Seminary philosopher um, uh, philosophy professor Nancy Murphy said Johnson's arguments were unconvincing. The main reason, she explained, is that he does not adequately understand scientific reasoning. Well, a few uh, 
states started requiring schools to teach the intelligent design critiques of Darwinism or Darwinian evolution in the 90s and early 2000s until it was stopped by a federal court ruling. In 2001, Johnson helped Republican Senator Rick Santorum craft an amendment to an education funding bill that would instruct all public schools to teach the controversy. But the amendment didn't pass. Johnson continued making arguments and writing books, raising questions about the evidence for evolution, though. In 2011, celebrating the 20th anniversary of the publication of Darwin on Trial, he said he remained, well, hopeful that intelligent design would eventually win the day. If we keep explaining the truth, he said, and adopting ever more creative ways of getting that truth across, as we are doing constantly, eventually more and more people could see it and could understand it. Again, Philip Johnson, the lawyer, the philosopher, died. He was um, 79. Tomorrow on the program, we are going to talk with Elizabeth Bra. She is the author of God's Spies, the Stasi's Cold War Espionage Campaign Inside the Church. Sounds a bit disheartening, but we'll look at the history and perhaps be better informed about how to avoid similar Uh, associations in the future. So that's coming up tomorrow on the program. And then on Friday, we'll look at the lighter side of the news. As I mentioned earlier, in fact, just a few moments ago, I was asked recently in the context of a conversation on my 30 years here at KPDQ, who among the many, many impressive people that I've had the opportunity to speak with, I have enjoyed and appreciated the most. And it was difficult for me to narrow it down to single names because 30 years, lots of wonderful people, some of whom have names that you would never recognize, others you might recognize but might be surprised are on that list. But among them would be Samuel Hakim, who has a ministry that originated right here in the metro area. Redeeming the Nations is a ministry that my husband and I support financially because we feel so strongly about the mission of proclaiming the gospel to Muslim nations around the world uh, in the absence of a Christian witness in so many places, and it's having a significant impact uh, in spreading the gospel. Samuel Hakim is its founder and uh, and president. I believe that's the right word. Maybe director is the better word. He's going in for a surgery tomorrow. I won't go into the details. They're private. Uh, but I would like to ask you, as a personal favor to me, and if you have appreciated his ministry and his time here on the program, um, if you would pray for Samuel Hakim and his wife, Marcel, as he goes in for surgery tomorrow, that will Uh, Because most surgeries require a a season of rest that follows. It'll keep him on the sidelines for a a period of time. My husband and I had uh, he and his wife over for dinner just about a week or so ago. And to hear him describe uh, what his longing, what his heart longs for. Most of us would have a laundry list of things. I want this to be healed and this to be ended. And I want... Um, he wants to draw nearer to God and for God to use him. And it, it was just such an impressive. I felt like having an apostle in the home when he and his wife were there. Would you pray for Samuel Hakim? I'll try to update you on how he's doing. But that surgery is scheduled for tomorrow. And I know I'm taking uh, some considerable time uh, and have uh, this last couple of weeks to pray for him in anticipation of the surgery. And I would ask that you would also pray for him as well. Again, that surgery taking place tomorrow. Samuel Hakim, the founder of Redeeming the Nation's Ministries. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.